Welcome to episode 336 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. During this month's No More Bad Zoom virtual happy hour, I mentioned it was Pride Month and put the Pride Progress Flag Zoom video filter on my video. Immediately, half the participants did the same thing. I feel so fortunate to have attracted such wonderfully supportive community members. As an out queer trans business owner, I love working with folks who share my values. Happy Pride to fellow members of the LGBTQ community and our allies. We need all of us working together to make the change we need in the world. Bullies will stop picking on a kid once they realize the kid has friends. Thank you for being our friend. Share some love for the LGBTQ community on your socials. We want to join this lovely and supportive community at next month's No More Bad Zoom virtual happy hour, which is held on the first Friday of the month. Sign up at nomorebadzoom.com. That's nomorebadzoom.com. It's free and perfect for entrepreneurs and anyone looking to improve their Zoom skills while networking with awesome people. Right after this break, we'll dive into this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's guest is on a mission to make 10,000 friends. He believes that every human interaction holds the potential to change your life, whether it's an open door or a change in perspective. That's why he's spending one hour, one-on-one with 10,000 different people to learn about their lives and see what comes of opening doors for no reason. He's met over 5,600 people across over 90 countries and spoken to corporations like Amazon and universities like Pepperdine. He's met with everyone from CEOs to celebrities to students to everyday people who've overcome extreme circumstances. He's been featured by press sources like The Kelly Clarkson Show and The Today Show and regularly shares his insights through podcasts and speaking gigs. Please join me in welcoming Rob Lawless. Thank you, Robbie. Good to be here. Rob, you're one of my new favorite people. Uh, We connected through the NSA Philly community. I love that you live kind of near me. I live in the Philly suburbs. So uh, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Yeah, so I think I'm biased. I'm obviously biased, but I define leadership by how well you know the people that you're leading. And like how, how much you make them feel seen and heard. And I feel like that can be a cliche term, feeling seen and heard thrown out there. But through my project, I feel like I've really gained an intimate understanding of it. And I think the first time that I felt I had leadership capabilities, it's interesting because I've had different roles throughout my life, more so in education, not really in my professional role. But I was the president of the National Honor Society in high school my senior year. And I was president of a community service corps, a club that year. And we did different things. Like I organized blood drives, organized events for Christmas, like toy drives and whatnot. But I think in college, I went to Penn State University and I was a tour guide. I was part of an organization called Line Ambassadors. So we would give tours to prospective students, but we would also put on projects around campus. And there are six different committees within the organization, kind of like Harry Potter houses. And I was the leader of one of those committees and my project was being in charge of the retreat where we would welcome new members into the organization. So it was a whole thing. And I think back on those times and I I don't know if it made me a good leader or a bad leader, 
But what I realized was I was a relaxed leader. And I think that I've carried those skills into my mission to meet 10,000 people. And I think that I've carried it into creating comfortable environments for people when I interact with them through my project. So to me, leadership, it's getting to know the people that you're leading, because if you don't have their buy-in, then you're not working collectively towards that goal. Yeah. I, I love that I've been doing this show for six plus years, almost seven years. And uh, every now and again, someone has a definition that's a little different than what I've heard before. And I think you're right. It is a unique perspective that you have about the importance of those kinds of relationships. But yeah, getting you know leadership, one quality is to really understand and get to know the people who are following you and what kind of drives them so you can understand how to pull them into the collective mission that you're all on. And like, do they really buy into the vision? And I love that you brought us back to your younger self. I'm going to dig even deeper, Rob. Sure. <laughs> you went to you went to your high, uh, last years of high school, um, but for you to have arrived in your last years of high school as the leader of two clubs, the National Honor Society, which says you've got good grades, mm -hmm. uh, and the Service Club, which means you're you're the kind of person who puts your time and effort into things you care about. What were you like as a kid? Like, what were you like on the playground? You know, were you organizing kids then? Did people see your potential? Were there adults or family members that really were like pushing you to, you know, do more good things in the world? Like what, what was sort of the inspiration for you early on? Sure. So I'm the youngest of three in my family. I have a sister who's six years older than me and a brother who's two years older than me and grew up in a two parent household. I fortunately still have both my parents. So I guess it should be noted that I grew up in a loving environment, just in a middle-class family in the suburbs of Philly. And as a kid, I was always involved in, in every, like peewee sports and into junior high and, and whatnot. Soccer played throughout my life, basketball, track and field. And I feel like I was an average student until I got to sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And the reason I feel like I became a, an above average student is because my best friend was an above average student. His name is Kurt. And he just had the best study guides he knew how to prepare for tests. And I think through osmosis, I kind of took on some of his ambition. So I started being really prepared for tests. And I think that helped me realize my potential. And once I realized that potential, I didn't want to not live up to it. So into high school, I carried that through, played soccer all through high school as well. And then, yeah, got involved in student council and the National Honor Society and whatnot. But I've always... I think just as a person in general, I've liked being active. So that's why the clubs fit and the, the studying for the tests and whatnot and doing the sports. And that's why now I feel like I'm on this great adventure. And that was something that I felt often through my childhood and I didn't want to lose. And that was a big motivator for me to find something in my life that could feel like it was a grand journey. So that's partially where this project came from. Mm. I, I feel like it was Kurt, right? Was that his name? We do yeah. a shout out <laughs> yeah. uh, to your, you, you know, you, you never know who your kids are going to be best friends with. And then what influence in this case, a very positive influence they may have uh, on, on your kid's life. Um, but, you know, and then it sounds like you started to look for some more formal roles too, like getting involved. Did you run for student government? Was it like a formal thing you did? I, so in my high school, each homeroom had like two student council leaders. And I don't even remember, I guess you were elected in your homeroom because freshman year, like no one even knew who each other was yet. So I, I just did it each year. And then I, I didn't run for any of the like president of the class or vice president or anything like that. Probably ironically, because you had to give a speech in front of the whole school and I was probably too nervous to do that. But for NHS, I think I don't even know how I ended up as the president of that either. I think it was just available and it just seemed like something that was good to run for that looked good on the resume and whatnot. Right. But yeah. Yeah. What did you think you were going to be? Like a, I don't know, let's say 12, 12 years old or so. Like, did you, uh, was there a plan in front of you at that time? I don't know if I had a plan at that time. I joke now that because the Sixers are doing well in the playoffs right now and stuff. It was like back then that I still thought I had the potential to become an NBA player. So I think I was more focused on those things. But in high school, I started to shift to, okay, I want to own my own business someday. And I, I didn't know what that looked like. It was more just a general idea. But I think I was attracted to that freedom and flexibility. 
in my work experience, so I started working when I was 14 years old at Chick-fil-A. I was a cashier in year, year from there. So it was right on 202 in, uh, I guess it's in our town. So Chick-fil-A, I worked there from 14 to 16. And then at 16, I, I went to a financial advisor's office and I was just doing administrative stuff for him, but he did really well for himself. And the company was only like 10 people. So I, I, again, I was exposed to, okay, you don't have to be in a big corporate company to succeed in life. So I think that started to shape my goals a little bit as well. And then as I got into Penn State, I minored in entrepreneurship and we could chat more about that stuff. But yeah, that's kind of how it unfolded. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I remember in high school, I'm a bit older than you, but in high school, in my senior year, um, I was taking a computer science class and I had taken a couple and it was only six of us in the class and three of the six people were the first, the third and the fifth in my class. My class had 1300 people. These were smart kids. They were like done with the work and they were like designing games. And I was about, I don't even know, like six weeks in and I was like, no, I'm not that serious. Like, and I realized that there was a business class that I could take and they were going to let me switch. And so I got a chance to do a business class. Uh, and I, you know, entrepreneurship wasn't named that back then. It was like, it was the, it was the nineties and we didn't, it, it wasn't called like, let's minor in this, you know what I mean? So, but yeah, I've been entrepreneur my whole life. And it sounds like you had that sort of this desire were there entrepreneurs in your life? Were there people that you knew had businesses? Like how do you even get an idea in your head in high school that you want to run your own business? Yeah, the, the surprising thing is no. My dad worked for Verizon for 35 years. My mom worked for AT&T, then became a stay-at-home mom. And then she went back and worked in the cafeteria of a local elementary school. So a very kind of traditional path for my parents. I do have an uncle who went out in, and started his own business, but that was like a little bit later in life. So it wasn't something I looked at at that time. I think the closest thing would be the my boss that I worked for in high school and then at Penn State. So my sister, my brother and I all went to Penn State. And I remember going there one year and her boyfriend at the time was in a fraternity. And Penn State had just played a, a football game against Michigan. They basically won the game. They added another second back onto the clock because there was a penalty. Michigan scored on the last play and won the game. So as a Penn State fan, we were all extremely upset. And shortly after that game, we went up to visit my sister and went to her boyfriend's fraternity house. And someone had a shirt on the wall that said Michigan cheats. And I was like, oh, that's such a cool shirt. Where can you buy that? And he told me that someone in his fraternity made it for their entrepreneurship class. And I just remember that being a formative moment for me that oh, you can create something of your own that's really cool and just sell it on your own. And I think back to that being like, oh, okay, I, I really like the idea of this. And then being at Penn State, because I was kind of around that time where like you couldn't major in entrepreneurship when I was at Penn State, you can now. It was kind of where it was starting to become really cool again. So there were three guys from Penn State that started a company called Weebly. It's kind of like Squarespace, like a drag and drop, create your own website. And they were only a few years older than I am. And they ended up joining Y Combinator out in California with other startups like Reddit. They became friends with guys who started Dropbox, Twitch, all these different things. And they would come back to Penn State and speak about entrepreneurship. But they ultimately sold their company for like $350 million, something like that. So seeing them was another big thing as well. And I oftentimes think back to their talks because they, Weebly, the company, they would talk about, they'd have an article and you'd get this huge spike in traffic. And you think, oh, now I'm on top of the world. I'm set. And then it comes right back down. And you're a little bit higher than you were before. And I've seen that with my project too, with media and whatnot. So yeah, those, those were formative and, and important, I think, role models for me. I, I having people who are just a little bit older than you kind of creating that experience and then sharing it back with you is, sounds like an incredible opportunity. Um, cause it seems within reach, like if they did it right, it's not just like Oprah did something, you know, like yeah. way, someone way far away from you, but someone who, you know, literally has access to the same education as you did a thing. 
um, that's that's really incredible that you had the, the insight uh, to hear all that. I'm actually curious, you've now brought this up a couple of times, you know, having a job as a cashier, like that's a pretty common, um, you know, retail kind of get people in the door gig at a restaurant restaurant. How did you end up? It was an insurance company, like a small office. How did you I, end up in that space? Yeah. I worked for a financial advisor. My financial advisor. Yeah. My older or my brother, my only brother, his best friend worked for this guy at the time. And talked about how it was such a great job and he felt like it was setting him up for his future and whatnot. And I he I heard that he had an opening that he was trying to hire someone. And my older brother and I and his friend, we were all in the same Latin class in school. So they were seniors. I was a sophomore at the time. And I remember asking him, his name is Zach, saying, Hey, I heard that Rich has He's looking to hire someone at work. And Zach was in a bad mood that day. So he just shut me down and didn't offer to help at all. And it was like later in the week or a week later, I said, hey, Zach, are you in a good mood today? And he said, yeah, why? I said, because I heard that Rich has an opening at his office and I want to see if you can introduce me. So then Zach introduced me and I, I went to, and he ended up being the one that would drive me after school because I didn't have my license yet. And we would go to work together. But the very first day, it was my interview and I did the interview with Rich and then Zach was like, all right, let's go work. And I didn't know that I was starting that day. I just thought I was going to be interviewed and told later if I got the job or not, but it was basically, all right, you're here, go work. So that's how I started. Wow. I mean, not <laughs> there's so many interesting pieces about this. It says a lot about who you were and who you are today. Uh, one that you're 16 and the, someone tells you that working in an office is, is a really good thing. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Mm-hmm. I want to be part of that. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like um, that, that you, again, you had someone a couple years older than you who had access to something and you, t- you took that in you, you listened to that. So you're a sharp kid. You're willing to try things to see where they go. And it exposed you to a whole new world of like being in that small office environment. All right, so you go off to college, you're at Penn State, your, your minor was entrepreneurship. What was your major? I studied finance. So you're, okay, so that, that's also interesting because now you're, you're, you're sort of moving that direction. Was that all because you were aiming for entrepreneurship and there wasn't a, a major for that? Like, did you think you were gonna use your finance degree in a, in a career move or were you trying to like leave Penn State and immediately go into entrepreneurship? Or was there an in-between career path you thought was gonna happen? I went into Penn State undecided. So I guess probably more so because I just wanted to increase my chances of getting into the university. But my sister had studied marketing there and my brother studied finance. So again, keeping with the theme of a couple of people older than you, exposing you to things. I had that with them and that was really important in my development there. But and I got to see the differences between their lifestyles. Like my sister went and worked for a local marketing firm and then my brother went and worked for PwC. And he was getting paid all this money and flying around the country, having the expense budget and whatnot. Of course, working a ton of hours as well. But I saw that. And when I had to decide my major, I actually went to my advisor and said, I really like music and business. And I'd love to do something at the intersection of those two. I didn't know that music business programs were a thing at other schools. It wasn't at Penn State. So she told me, unfortunately, that's not something we offer. So then I thought about advertising because I saw that as more of the creative side of marketing and business. And I've always loved the creative side of life. I used to draw a lot as a kid. I've always loved music. I took guitar lessons in high school for two years. So I had that piece of me as well. And then when it came down to the wire, I was thinking of either supply chain management or finance. And supply chain at the time, Penn State's program was like top in the country. and anyone who did it got multiple job offers, but I thought finance had a higher floor, I guess, of, you know, and a higher ceiling of what was possible. So once I decided to do finance, I thought, okay, I'm either going to do consulting or investment banking because my approach to life at that point was I'm going to graduate. I'm going to make as much money as I can as quickly as possible. And then I will quit the corporate world and I will live life the way that I want to live it. And I lasted in consulting for a year and three months before I started changing the path. <laughs> oh man, did you have any opportunities to do any kind of internships while you were at college? Was that part of the experience for you? 
I did. And they, I feel like all of my corporate experiences have guided me away from the corporate world. Mm -hmm. And my first internship was with Pico, the Philadelphia Electric Company. And I would take the train in from Elm Street in Norristown. It was the last train on the stop. So it was like an hour and 15 minute commute every day to 30th Street Station to walk across the bridge to go to Pico. And I hated that. And that summer, they hired me and another girl from Villanova. It was like the first time that they had hired two interns because they thought they had a lot of work to be done. And then we finished the work halfway through the summer, but we were still contracted to be there through the whole summer. So I I felt like I was in this really kind of poor position of, I wanted to be ambitious and show the people that I was a go-getter. And you try to ask people like, hey, what can I help you with? What can I help you with? And then eventually it became apparent that we were slowing them down. So they put us in a corner office and we're like, you stay here until the rest of the summer. So I was watching Netflix. Uh, I was watching YouTube videos. And sounds great on paper. Really yeah. difficult to get through a nine-hour workday with nothing to do. So yeah. that was tough. I would, I would love to hear the girl's opinion of that time as well because she was in the office with me. And then I went to Dick's Sporting Goods the summer after. And I, I interned at their headquarters in Pittsburgh. And I was a financial planning and analysis intern for them. And they have a very well-built-out marketing internship program at the time. I was the first FP&A intern that they had. So they didn't have anything built out for me. And I arrived in quarter close. So my manager there didn't pay attention to me for the first two weeks that I was there. And again, I was in this position of, I really want to make an impact here. I feel like I'm bugging this person. So... At that time, and this happened at Pico too, I'd be on Forbes.com, I'd be on Entrepreneur.com, I'd be looking up other people who were doing their own things. And then at Deloitte too, my first project was October through December, and I rolled off of the project, meaning that I wasn't staffed with a particular client uh, at the end of December, and it took weeks for me to get staffed on Uh, a new project. So while my buddies were stepped on these cool projects, I was waiting for that moment to be put somewhere. And I I just feel like it was the universe, God, whatever, being like, why don't you look over here at entrepreneurship or doing your own thing? So yeah, all of my corporate experiences, I feel like have guided me away. And it's cool now because I'll speak at corporations, like I've spoken to KPMG and and Shell and whatnot. And I, I feel really good because I feel like I'm going back into that corporate world, but on my terms, instead of someone else deciding my path. Yeah. I mean, you have a history of having, of like being full of potential and waiting for someone to tap you Mm. and say, it's time to get in the game. And now you can get in the game, but it's, it's of your own doing, which is definitely different. It's got to feel really good. Was it after your Deloitte consulting time that you went from there into into entrepreneurship? So I left Deloitte and my whole mindset with Deloitte was I'm not going to seek to leave this. So I was a strategy and operations business analyst. And in that program, they were one of the only companies that was still paying for people to get their MBAs full time. So I thought at least seven years I would be at Deloitte. So you do two as an analyst, one as a consultant, you go get your MBA full time for two years, you come back and you commit two years to the firm for them to pay it off. So, and the people getting their MBAs are going to Wharton, Harvard, Columbia, University of Chicago. So I wanted that at the time. And then after a year and three months, I was thinking, I'm not going to seek to leave Deloitte. I never looked for a job outside of Deloitte, but if the opportunity comes up, I'm going to jump on it. And I think that's been another theme throughout my life. So actually I was on a project in Kentucky and I would fly there from Philly every week. And one of the other guys would fly from Houston. And in our late nights in the office talking about entrepreneurship, he said, one of my best friends from high school is the director of sales at a tech startup in Philadelphia. You should talk to him. And his friend had gone from private equity into the startup world. So he put us in touch and I talked to the guy and I said, yeah, I'm not trying to join your company, but I am interested in hearing about your path because I could see myself taking a similar leap someday. And then the more they were in the data analytics space, If you're familiar with Tableau, all the partners at Deloitte were raving about it at the time. This company was doing it for small to mid-sized businesses. So it seemed like the right 
space and the right time. And it was wrong company, although that company is great and led to many other great things. But like our, our competition that we would lose out to got bought by Google for billions of dollars. So <laughs> right time, right space, wrong yeah, company. Yeah. But yeah, I left Deloitte after a year and three months, went to a tech startup called RJ Metrics. They at the time had $24 million in funding. And I worked for them for a year and nine months until they were acquired in July of 2016. And I started my mission to meet 10,000 people in November of 2015. So there were eight months of overlap of me meeting people and me doing sales for this tech startup. Yeah, I, I know we're going to get to the part about how you got this idea to begin with. And I know you've shared that you've probably interviewed dozens, if not hundreds of times. Um, so I'd love hearing sort of this background of who you are growing up, though, because all this shapes like how you even saw this vision and decided to make it your own. Uh, what year is it that you were doing both these things? What year did the um, 10,000 friends start? 2015. So I started reaching out to people in September of 20. Well, te technically, so I wrote the idea down in January of 2014 while I was still at Deloitte. And then it just sat in my iPhone notes for one and a half to what, two years. What, why did why did you write it down? Like, were you doing an exercise? Were you doing some kind of like January you know, goal setting, like where did, where did it come from? Had you read a book? Like what was the inspiration? I often jot ideas down in my iPhone notes and it's still like, I don't, I don't journal, but I do jot things down in my iPhone notes. And I think it was just one of the ideas that I had that I jotted down and it was the only idea that didn't leave me that kept coming back into my life. And after I left Deloitte and went to the tech startup, I had moved into Philly for that job because when I worked for Deloitte, I was still living at my parents' house because I traveled all the time. But once I was in Philly, I felt like when I was at Penn State, I got to know a lot of people through a bunch of different clubs and activities. And that was one of the greatest fulfillments of my time as a student was the network that I built. And I saw Philadelphia as a new Penn State campus, like a bigger campus to conquer. So yeah, and I moved in and then, uh, yeah, so I wrote down the idea and then September of 2015, the inspiration struck again. I started reaching out to people. It took two months for me to like get someone on the calendar. So November of 2015, and then I was laid off technically at the end of June of 2016. What's interesting is that you were probably doing outreach calls to line up sales conversations right, oh, yeah. for your job, right? Yeah. And there's <laughs> that's a... The, you know, and, and, and I've done it and I've done fundraising calls. I've taught fundraising. I teach people sales and there's always like trying to, you have to like, I remember doing fundraising calls years ago, like, and I, I'm, I'm an outgoing person, right? I'm an extrovert too. I, I like, like doing this, but to get myself to do it, I would do all this setup. I would have like the database on my screen, a list here, a notepad, my phone turned just so, you know, mm -hmm. three phone, phone calls in. I was usually really chill. My feet are up on the desk. I was fine. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. I, but it's really different than when you're just like casually checking to say, hey, you all want to get together. So did you start to notice like <laughs> vast difference between how your mind was when you were approaching, you know, doing this outbound sales, trying to line up these conversations for work versus this project that was sort of, sort of this fun. I mean, I don't know how seriously you took the 10,000 in the beginning. Clearly now you're a 5,600 plus. You're getting a little more serious about it. Um, but, you know, how did that how did that fit in your life, those two very different scenarios? When I started it, I always had the intention to finish it. So I, I took it super seriously from the beginning. Wow. Yeah. And I, so the first eight people, I took a picture with them. I wrote notes on them afterwards. And after I met eight people, I felt comfortable. Okay. I'm going to start the account. I'm going to publish their stories and you know, it's live because I didn't want to have two people and then back out. But after eight people, I created my Instagram account and then just went from there. There was never a day where I stepped away from it since. But the, yeah, I saw, I'm forgetting the question now. Um, well, you when you were approaching, reaching out to people to be part of this project, oh, yeah, yeah. like outbound sales calls, which, you know, fairly different probably. Yeah, so the, the approach was similar because, and I, I'm so grateful for my time in sales out of, out of everything I've done, that's been the most helpful in my life. And I do it every day now still, you know, I'm just pitching myself as a speaker instead of a tech company. So 
I, I think the sales helped with the, it helped diminish the fear of rejection. I wasn't afraid to get rejected and I wasn't afraid to follow up multiple times if I didn't hear back from someone. And I think that would have deterred a lot of people if they didn't have that experience. So I, and there's uh, billypen.com in Philadelphia. It's like a millennial news site that would had a who's next list. So who's next in the culinary scene or who's next in the political scene, who's next in the music scene. And from my sales days, I knew how to crack people's emails to make sure my email was getting to them. So I would find people's emails from that list. I would send them notes or I'd find other people that I thought were interesting in Philly through other sites and stuff. And yeah, the approach was the same. The, other, the thing that happened with the meetings was there was just no agenda. So that was the difference. And it allowed it to turn from, I want something from this person to, we're just here to chat. And I knew that going into it. The ninth, I think he was the ninth guy that I met. I later was on his podcast back in 2020. And he said, yeah, I thought you were just running a multi-level marketing scheme. Like I was waiting for the, the, the catch at the end, but it never came. And then I think people started to trust me. But as I would meet people, they'd say, you know who else you should talk to is this person and this person. I'm, I'm curious about something. 2015 was the year that I started working on this podcast. And so podcasting wasn't new then. I mean, there are people, Pat, Pat Flynn, Smart Passive Income, I think 2008, his show came out. 2005 were the earliest podcasts. So it was not widely used. But I'm curious why this didn't become a podcast of some of kind. It sounds like you had a private conversation, you took a photo, and you share it on Instagram? Yes. Yeah. So how did you decide the medium you were going to communicate that you were doing these conversations? Yeah, it's a great question. I, to me, the value was in the connection that I was forming with that individual person. And that's still how I see it today. And I thought if I had turned it into a podcast, then that person and I were no longer speaking for each other. We were speaking for the third party, which was the audience. And I've seen that the choice not to do that reiterated so many different times through my project because it's different like this, for example, you're trying to share my story to have a certain impact on an audience or give them insights. But when you're just meeting with someone one-on-one -on -one to meet them, it's, I, I've had so many people don't write this in your thing, but, or don't do this, but, and they give me these pieces of themselves that would be hidden if that third party was present. And I didn't want to lose that. And yeah, I've thought about that a lot capturing this on social media too and growing a following and whatnot very early on i promised myself that i would not care about the following like i never tried to grow an instagram audience i probably hurt myself in that space by not doing that and not trying to be more active on social media but it was like if instagram went away tomorrow i'd still have that hour conversation that i had with that person where i focused all of my energy on them so it was the connection, and I, I still believe that to be the most valuable part of what I'm doing. Probably the second thing being, now that I do share people's stories, but that gives me a chance to say, hey, here's what I've learned about someone, and other people can relate to their story yeah. in one way or another. All right, your story, by the way, of, of setting out to meet 10,000 people reminds me of a few other, like, oh, I could have thought of that <laughs> kind of ideas. One was, I don't know if you ever heard of this, but there's a guy who sold um, pixels on a static web page for a dollar a pixel. And you could buy, you know, if you wanted to have a like 500 by 500 pixel image, you would pay the money money for that. Uh, and he made a million dollars. Then there, of course, is the guy who took a, pen, a paper clip and he, he kept, you know, trading it up to a paper clip to a pen and then on and on, and he documented the whole thing. I think it was a guy, uh, and eventually got a house. Uh, and you're like, wait, <laughs> like, what did I, <laughs> it seems like, yeah. <laughs> what a cool idea. But of course, once it's been done, no one thinks like this should be done again. I have a friend who's done a thousand lives, uh, Blake Fly, I'll give a shout out. He's been on my show a bunch of times. Um, so yeah, that's pretty cool too, right? Like he's literally been alive a thousand days in a row, um, which not many people set out to do. 
So are you meeting other people? <laughs> I think, are, is there like a network of people like you who have created these audacious goals around some kind of like somewhat lighthearted plan, you know? Like what are the other people you've met along the way that have maybe equally interesting? Yeah, I, it, it, I think I think Blake and I were supposed to meet and that he just, I, if I'm thinking, do you mind if I look at my phone? I want to see if yeah. it's him. So let's Fly see. Shocker is his last name, Blake Flyshocker. Oh, is it? Uh, okay, here you can. And if you two aren't scheduled to meet, confirm he's or to meet. deny that. Yes, that is him. <laughs> yeah. So we <laughs> had. Hold your phone up. That's cool. Funny, <laughs> funny enough, he, he had messaged me back January 3rd of 2022. And yeah, we're still, we're still, you know, falling off one way or, or the other, but I've had that happen many times. And I think one of the things that is cool is you start to get bubbled up. Either you come across them because of the algorithms or people say, you remind me of this person. I've gotten the, re- the red paper clip thing so many times. So many times, I'm sure. Which I, I, yeah, I, which I think is awesome. I've, of course, gotten Humans of New York, which I think he's kind of the gold standard of what is possible with human connection. There's another guy who's become a, a friend and sort of a mentor of mine. His name is Chris. He runs an account called Special Books by Special Kids. He has an amazing YouTube channel and Facebook channel. And he interviews individuals with rare diagnoses from around the country and I think sometimes around the world. And I've learned so much from him and he gives them a platform. He says, what do you want the world to know about you? And oftentimes they're like, I just want the world to know that I'm just a normal person like everyone else. And he, I, he's giving a platform to people whose voices should be shared, which I think is amazing. And then Nuri Studios is his Instagram. His name's Imran. He recently, I think it was last year, he spent 85 days in his Toyota Camry, I think driving to all the lower 48 states and he interviewed a thousand different strangers asking them for life advice so he shares the life advice and he took uh, film photos of all of them so he shares those in reels on instagram there's a guy that i recently met named orly it's called orly's listening table he has a table where he sits down just no judgment no money or anything like that just listens to people so he's currently driving across the country, setting up his table and listening to people. And there is another girl. She has a thing called Big Talk, which is kind of like cutting through the small talk to have deeper, meaningful conversations with people. I haven't connected with her yet for my project. But yeah, so there's a handful That's of them. That's so neat. Yeah, yeah, you're making me think that um, years ago, the National Speakers Association Influence Conference, there was someone on the main stage I can't remember the exact project, but he was going around and um, basically just asking for random things. Like he would just go up to people and ask, like, uh, you know, like for like I, I don't know. Like I once walked into a Burger King and asked for one onion ring. Mm-hmm. Like that's the example. <laughs> was was he the same guy who was trying to get over his fear of rejection? Yes. Yeah, G. Jang, I think his name. Yes. Was. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's Amazing. right. So like those kinds of things where you're like, you know, these people come up with these projects, sometimes motivated, you know, from internal sense of what they're trying to do. And then, you know, you pull all these other people and thank you for giving a shout out to all those people. We're gonna do our darndest to, to get their information on the show notes. Definitely. Um, I may have to ask you for some. <laughs> for oh, yeah, yeah, that. no problem. All right. Here's here's a question I have for you, because clearly, you know, a zillion people. I uh, one question is how do you monetize what you're doing? And I'll ask you the other question next. Sure. In the early days, I'm sure you feel this as well as an entrepreneur. I was incredibly naive about myself. I was 24 when I started this project, but I was naive about how difficult the path would be. And I think I'm currently naive about how difficult the future will be, but I think that's been one of my greatest assets through this journey. I talked to this agency recently called chemistry and one of their values is being delusionally optimistic. And I love that. I think I have that very much in my life. So yeah, the, um, but now I'm forgetting what the question was again. What was the question? How are you monetizing this? Oh yeah. So in, in the early days I was like, okay, well, I think this is an interesting concept. I see other people 
on Instagram if they have interesting concepts that they're able to loop in brands at a certain point. And it's interesting because, again, I, I wasn't someone who wanted to grow a social media following or anything like that. I just believed that the concept of what I was doing would be cool enough that eventually they would come to me. So I did do partnerships with brands. The beautiful thing was a lot of the early on partnerships and still the majority of them were people who were part of my project who had a company of their own. So my first true partner was Fishtown Pharmacy, a mom and pop pharmacy in Fishtown, Philadelphia. And the guy we met for my project. And as we were meeting, he said, you know, I wish I could uh, help you or sponsor you in some way. And I said, well, it's March 10th. If you want to give me $200 for the month, I'll tag you in every post. And I'll say presented this month by Fishtown Pharmacy. And he said, I'll give you $300 and we'll call it a deal. So, and because I was posting that, Vibe Urgent Care in Philadelphia was new at the time. And the CEO reached out to me and said, hey, what's the deal with this partnership? I see you're tagging presented by. And I met with him for my project. And then during our meeting, he cut me a check for the next month. And then the dentist that I went to, Team Dental, the guy reached out to me and said, what's the deal? I would have partnered with you. Why didn't you come to me? And then he became my sponsor for the next month. And Leadership Philadelphia and then a dog walking company and a wedding band and a t-shirt company. So all these random different things. And then in 2018, I was on Ryan Seacrest's radio show. And I think that to me, it was a, a higher level of credibility for what I was doing. And again, from my sales days, I knew how to find people's emails. So I found the head of WeWork, uh, head of partnerships for WeWork, because I had been meeting so many people from that community. I sent him a message and I said, hey, here's what I'm doing. Ryan Seacrest thinks it's cool. I meet a lot of people from your community. Could we do something together? So I ended up partnering with them for nine months from June of 2019 until March 11th of 2020. It was just the natural end of my partnership with them. And at that time, when the world was crumbling, I felt like I had so many people come to me during that time and be like, can you promote my thing? Can you pr promote this thing? Because our business is struggling and whatnot. And I myself was struggling too, because I didn't have any a job really either. So I started, and I, I don't know if you know her, her name is Michelle Poehler. She's a a speaker. She did a project called 100 Days Without Fear. She has an account now called Hello Fears. And I met her in August of 2019. And she told me about her public speaking journey and how well she was doing with it and how great of a lifestyle it was. And when she was telling me how much she was making per speech, and I was like, that's more than I've made in the entire five years I've been doing this project. It sent a light bulb off in my mind. And she said, there's space for you in this industry because I had done the Kelly Clarkson show. I'd done the Today Show. And she said, you have the media to back it up and you have something that you can that can relate to companies too, being connection. So during COVID, when I was living back in my childhood bedroom at my parents' house, I started having these online seminars where I would invite people who followed me to join a Zoom call. I would teach them how I got to know people and I would ask them to make a donation afterwards based on what they felt the value was. And I would ask them for testimonials too, saying, eventually I'd like to take this to universities and corporations and whatnot. And then that summer, I put out an Instagram story and said, hey, everyone, I'm trying to land like 10 gigs by August 15th. If you can connect me with your company, your school or whatever, please let me know. And then I got introduced to Amazon. I got introduced to Pepperdine. I got introduced wow. to Auburn, uh, Boston Consulting Group. So it just, it was like the experience had been there and the knowledge had been there. And then COVID really placed an emphasis on this idea of connection. So lucky timing, I think. But since then, it's been speaking. So I've done, I've done 35, I think 35 paid engagements over the last two years and doing more at, at higher rates and more frequently now. So that's the future. Man, I, there are so many people who are impressed and, and also hopeful listening to what you say because you just, you had an idea. It was a little side hustle, a little hobby, a little project, you know, you kept at it. It over time became, um, you know, more and more impressive because you were consistently doing it and consistently putting it out there. You sort of stumbled your way into getting things sponsored uh, a few times. Then you had the sales background. So you knew how to like follow up and build that bigger. 
I mean, the media coverage that you have, I mean, I'd love to hang out with Kelly Coxon, like, you know, Um, say hi to Ryan for me, right? So like, uh, that's really cool to have those, that media is going to go a long way through your credibility. And then of course, yeah, connection. I mean, I think it was 2019 or maybe 2018, CDC was talking about loneliness being an epidemic. That was before the pandemic. So, you know, figuring out how to draw bigger connections. So which brings me to my next question, which is, you know, you have so this big network of people and you have your inner circle that you know you're going to stay in touch with. You have people in that second and third tier that you maybe met at a conference, you know, five years ago. Um, maybe you worked with them a few years ago. Maybe Like something, you liked each other. Maybe one of the people that you met in one of these conversations, these 5,000 plus conversations. How do you nurture and sustain those kind of, I guess, weaker connections? Any habits, philosophies, practices? I think well with the because a lot of people ask too, does this impact like you're meeting new people every day? How do your friends from college feel about it or your family or whatnot? And I've, I'm very close, deep relationships with my friends from college and high school, and I think doing my project has strengthened them even more because I stopped caring about everything other than spending time with the people I care about. So that became my biggest priority in life, and it still is. So that was good. And then with the project, I've always had this passive approach to when I meet with people, the door is open and you can walk back through that door whenever, but I don't, I don't feel a need to say, okay, every two months I have to follow up with this person because I just know it's unrealistic to maintain that many relationships and it, it would become a job. So I've just had this very passive approach to it, which if people reach out to me, and they, they want to catch up or like I, I've met people virtually who've been in Philly and I've gone out and grabbed drinks with them and stuff. I met this a pilot from Norway in LA and then I was living in Hoboken and he had flown to New York City and he only had a layover and I caught up with him at the Oculus in New York City just for his layover. So I get to see people again and I, I try to be good about that. There are times too where I've fallen off and people want to reconnect for one reason or the other. But yeah, I think it's been a, a passive approach. And Do you have a list of all the people you've met, like separate from what you've published on Instagram? I, I, I do write everyone's story in my iPhone notes before I post it to Instagram. So it is really nice. Like if I had met you and you were the 130th person that I met and I wanted to know what number you were, you could just type Robbie Samuels into my iPhone notes and it's, it's searchable. So it takes me. That's right awesome. So it's searchable. If you want to find people, if you want to connect to people, cause you, you're like, wait, you remind me of so-and-so you can go find that other person and make, make the introduction. Does that part of what happens? Yeah. And I enjoy doing that. I think being a connector is something that, that I love. You're super interesting. Uh, my last question this is actually, I, I love this wrap up question. Uh, if we're connecting a year from now and lucky for you and I, we both live in the same general vicinity. Um, we will be in touch, but let's say it's a year from now. And I suddenly realize it's been a year since I interviewed you. And I ask you about all the updates, like what's going on? What are we celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Stability, I think is, is the biggest focus for me because it's been something that I've lacked throughout the entirety of this project. I've had it here. And there, but I, I think speaking, I'm so optimistic about speaking because it's the first time that I have a repeatable product that much like my tech sales days, I know I can push time and time again and, and iterate on it, of course. But yeah, I think stability because there, I mean, we could talk a whole other hour about like the sacrifices that go into entrepreneurship, but I would love to have a wife and kids someday. And I've kind of put that stuff on the back burner to ensure that the foundation of my future is this project. And so I think with stability comes a little bit more freedom to, to add some of those other pieces of life back in. But yeah, I would love to do 40 to 50 speeches a year. And I'm growing in my confidence as a speaker, hopefully, and I'm sure that's always a never ending journey. But I would love to get to the point next year, where I know I'm going to go on a stage and kill it and come away with a standing ovation. Wow. I mean, 
I can't wait to celebrate all of that with you. I mean, that all sounds amazing and also very humble, but you're like stability. Yeah. <laughs> um, how can people find you and follow your work? I am on Instagram at Rob's 10 K friends. So it's R O B S one zero K friends. That's where I keep track of every person's story that I meet. I am also at Rob's 10 K friends.com. And there I have some information about my speaking, like my demo reel and whatnot. But those are really the, the two main places. And if someone wants to meet for my project and they're in the Philly area or not, shoot me a DM and I'd be happy to spend an hour with them. Brilliant. I'm going to put all those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Robbie. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rob. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 336. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another town professional who achieved success despite some challenges. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about that journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.